you ever plagiarized? Have you ever cheated? If not, what's wrong with you? Aren't you hearing that everyone does it? If the defenders of Claudine Gay, former Harvard president, are to be believed, it's no big deal and you should be doing it too. This has sparked a debate about why so many are so quick to excuse Gay's plagiarism and why it was overlooked in the first place. But there's something even more troubling than the attempt to excuse her plagiarism. There are voices trying to excuse plagiarism in general, and nobody in the intellectual world is able to explain why plagiarism is wrong, certainly not in a way that succeeds in persuading people not to do it. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we will look at how we got here and offer objectivism's alternative to this intellectual vacuum. I'm Dan Schwartz, a visiting fellow at ARI, and with me is Ben Baer, fellow at ARI. Hi, Ben. Hi, Dan. So a little bit of background here. Um, this whole situation started back in December um, at a congressional hearing where a number of university presidents spoke about the anti-Semitism on campus and really refused to condemn anti-Semitism for reasons that our colleagues Ilan Giorno and Cargate went into in a podcast last month. Um, in the wake of their failure to condemn uh, anti-Semitism, uh, there was a lot of uproar and the UPenn president, Liz McGill, was pressured to resign. Um, but Harvard was really standing by Claudine Gay, their president. Um, and they even stood by her after uh, it was revealed that in a number of her works, and now it turns out to be about half of her published works, she plagiarized to varying degrees. Um, and this is significant plagiarism. So it's not like she copied whole works, but this is what you'd call significant plagiarism. Just to give you one example. Um, so there is um, an article um, by Bobo and Gillum, and here's what's in the original. Using 1987 national set survey data, then skipping a bit, the results show that Blacks in high Black empowerment areas, as indicated by control of the mayor's office, are more active than either Blacks living in low empowerment areas or white counterparts of comparable socioeconomic status. Furthermore, the results show that empowerment influences Black participation by contributing to a more trusting and efficacious orientation to politics and by in greatly increasing Black attentiveness to political affairs. Now here's, so remember that, Here's what's in Clouding Gay's dissertation. Using 1987 survey data, Bobo and Gillum found that African-Americans in black high empowerment areas, as indicated by control of the mayor's office, are more active than either African-Americans in low empowerment areas or their white counterparts of comparable socioeconomic status. Empowerment, they conclude, influences black participation by contributing to a more trusting and efficacious orientation towards politics and by greatly increasing Black attentiveness to political affairs. Uh, and there are no quotation marks there. It is uh, presented as if those are all Claudine Gay's own words, um, and there are just many of the words are taken verbatim from the source. So people are asking, and this is you know, one example, this is something she did repeatedly in her published works and dissertation. People are asking, how could Harvard hire as president someone like this? How did she rise to the rank of president making a $900,000 salary, which she's keeping right now? And, and then at least I, I, they stood by 
Um, she was supposed to resign, but Harvard has never said what she did was wrong or condemned it. They stood by her, despite the fact that she plagiarized in half of her published works. Um, this is not minor plagiarism. If I had a student who plagiarized that many times in their essays to that degree, that student would be before you know, hearings, um, that student would potentially be facing suspension or maybe with that many times of doing an expulsion if they got a warning first. So this is serious. And it's just, it's to me shocking that she's still a president. Uh, she's still a professor at Harvard even now. So you may be hearing out there a debate and questions about whether Harvard's commitment to diversity, whether their egalitarianism are playing a role in both her hiring and in Harvard's defense of her. You may be wondering and hear people wondering, would Harvard be standing by her if, if she were a white male president? After all, um, Liz McGill, the president of UPenn, who was white, um, faced a lot more pressure and, and a lot less defense of her and did resign much more quickly. Um, and so this is one, I think, debate that is very loudly out there. Um, but then uh, you had the idea of looking at a scandal that nobody's talking about. Well, for sure. But before we do, I think I should mention about the, just a, briefly about the gay scandal, because this isn't our main focus today, that uh, the, the questions people are raising about it, about whether, they're, whether DEI had a role in getting her hired in the first place, in keeping her employed even after this scandal. These are, I think, totally legitimate questions and uh, need to be discussed. And it's certainly something we have discussed in the past. We're probably going to talk more about it in the future. So in saying that there's this other scandal that nobody's talking about, this is not in any way to diminish um, the, uh, the, the questions that are being discussed. I should also say that there are allegations on the other side of this controversy that, that because that the only reason that Gay was singled out for her plagiarism was because of her race. Uh, if she were a white male president of a college and had said something bad uh, in a hearing, maybe she wouldn't have been scrutinized so much. And she also said, alleges that she's received a lot of racist hate mail uh, and harassment because of this. And I don't think you should diminish that possibility either, that there is that she's perhaps being targeted with racism, which if so is, is contemptible. But it's completely compatible with the fact that people might be being racist toward her with the fact that she's nonetheless guilty of this plagiarism. And the question is, I think the general way to put this question is why are academics willing to sacrifice uh, academic integrity and the value of education that comes with it uh, in spite of, uh, why are they willing to sacrifice that to other values? Uh, to the values of DEI, to the values of other political causes, tolerance for the Palestinians, et cetera. That's the broadest form in which I think we can put the question. And because it seems true that they, they really are willing to do it. And one of the things that this is going to raise for us is, that, well, are they sacrificing a value that they actually hold? Or do they maybe even not hold the value in the first place? Do they maybe really not care that much about academic integrity in the first place? And are there reasons for that? And that's what we're going to go into today. But first, just to establish the fact, uh, to be explained, that, that it's not just this case. And this is the wider 
issue that not so many people are talking about, that it's not just this case where they seem to be tolerating plagiarism, uh, academic integrity infractions. It's a much broader problem than that. There's widespread cheating and plagiarism in higher education, not just among students, but among the faculty. And we were able to find at least a little bit of data to back this up. Now, this is the kind of thing that's very hard to find data on because uh, obviously cheaters don't want to admit it even when they're being anonymously surveyed. And faculty who ignore cheating probably don't want to fess up to it anyway. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we found at least one study from the Journal of Academic Ethics in 2011, uh, several thousand uh, professors surveyed, uh, about 40% of whom said that they admit to ignoring plagiarism cases. Now, maybe this is because they think they don't have enough evidence to prove that someone did it, or they think that the plagiarism is relatively minor, uh, but nonetheless, they're ignoring it. And in another survey we found from a uh, website called Fitzgerald, the 7.5% 7, 7 of people who admitted cheating uh, said that they've been caught, which suggests that a whole bunch of other ones are not being caught. Now, that means that could either be because they're, they're just good at it, they're using technological uh, uh, tricks that bypass the scrutiny of the professors, but you have to think that when there's that many who are getting away with it, it's also because the professors just aren't trying that hard. And here we're just talking about uh, professors, of course, uh, not catching the cheating of their students. If they're not catching the cheating of their students, um, you, you'd think that that would be the thing they would focus on first. They're probably not going to be focusing on uh, academic integrity infractions that are happening with their colleagues, which is also often the case. Why are they doing this? Why don't they care? Well, the kind of excuses that they'll give often is that the people who are doing the most teaching, the ones who are dealing with the most papers and homework grading, these are the adjunct faculty who are overburdened. They just don't have the time to deal with it. And the, there's a lot of institutional pressure uh, for them to ignore it because students complain. Sometimes they call lawyers. Sometimes they, their parents come into the office. Uh, and sometimes they call you directly. I've had this happen to me. So like, there's a lot of incentives. But of course, that just kicks the can down the road one more step. Why is it that the institutions aren't supporting these professors? Why is it that parents aren't supporting the professors? There's a whole cultural problem here of just lots of people not really thinking that this is an important issue. Uh, and I certainly have anecdotal experience with this. I was a professor for 10 years in higher education. Um, I did not ignore plagiarism. Consequently, I think I must have caught hundreds of plagiarized papers over the course of my 10 years and had to do the paperwork every time and had to go through the bureaucracy every time. And it was hell. And I understand why people don't want to do it. I think I was the only one in my department uh, a department that I was in seven years who pursued it nearly as much as I did to the point where I think my administrators, my, my higher ups were starting to get annoyed by the fact that I was doing it. But I couldn't, I couldn't come up with an excuse to not do it because in every case, the, the, the evidence was so compelling. Um, Dan, what kind of experience did you have uh, with this? Yeah, I can still remember my first plagiarism case back when I was a graduate student, probably in my first class that had writing in it. And it was the first time I had to speak one-on-one -on -one with a student. And 
Um, and you can't go you know, accusing them of plagiarism. You have to kind of go with an open mind, listen to their story. It's, it's very stressful. Some students will deny they did anything wrong. Some students will at least seem ignorant. They don't, it's you know, just they weren't taught properly. And, and, and then they'll try to make that case when they you know, object and bring the case before a hearing. And, and when these are graduate students or maybe adjunct part-time faculty who are, who are paid a very low wage, to deal with that stress for no extra money and, and have to, you know, maybe spend extra time at hearings and writing reports it is stressful. And it's not something I would have done unless I thought, like, I really seriously need to defend the integrity of this class and the meaning of a grade in this class. Um, and I think not all faculty have that strong a view about it. So that's going to allow them to push through. Um, and and I think about I have been... The I, just, I think I've been fortunate that every time I've had a plagiarism case, I've gotten complete support from the administration. But I do hear a lot of stories about faculty who are pressured to go easy, um, whether directly, you know, administration saying, well, we can't, you know, suspend or expel this student because I think what's not said is maybe we need the tuition money. Um, or I, I think, you know, you also potentially... Uh, lose students or get lower student valuations, and that can affect your continued hiring. Um, so these are all factors that um, I, I think I think what prevented those factors from influencing me is partly I think there is a real moral issue here. So there's these are the kind of stated excuses that are often given for why faculty don't ignore it. We're going to talk soon about how we think there's more to it than that um, related to the their moral views, which, which I think we have, but they don't. Um, but it's not just a view among the faculty, it's a view among the students too, which is why they're doing it. And so what do we know, Dan, about, about just the extent of this attitude among students? Yeah, so I think Ben and my experience uh, when we look at this up is pretty typical. Plagiarism is definitely widespread on college and university campuses. The um, the kind of plagiarism and the kind of cheating will affect how many students admit to doing it. So there's like the really severe plagiarism uh, and cheating, which might be like going to a paper mill and buying a whole paper um, or hiring someone to write a paper for you. And 8% of students in one survey admitted to doing that at least once. 19% of students admitted to uh, doing homework for another student. 40% of students, and I find this is very, very common in my classes that I've taught at universities, 40% admitted to copying material from internet websites and just submitting it as one's own work. 60% did what Claudine Gay did. 60% improperly cited or failed to cite. Uh, maybe they, they changed just a word here and there, like to apply to synonym, and then didn't even put the citation. And 65% of students giving... admitted just so that we're giving our citation, that's from Journal of Higher Education in 2006. Uh, yes. The other one that I cited from 2011, it's worth noting, like these are from, these are the stats we found from 15 years ago. Since then, there have been advances in cheating technology. So you can only imagine that the problem has gotten worse. And one thing about these numbers is, I, I think based on my experience, the cheating is more common when students feel like they can get away with it. And a lot of students feel like with ChatGPT, they can use it and it won't be caught. Um, so I think it's going to be common for that reason. 
Um, now, most of, you know, most common is just this failure to cite, a failure to paraphrase properly. Um, most of the time, I think this is something that happens. Students know it's wrong, usually, um, and students know that they're misleading the professor about what their own work really consists in. Uh, but it's something you end up with when students uh, try to write a whole essay on the last day or the last two days. And then just because it's impossible to really write the essay in that amount of time, they take shortcuts. Um, often they do a calculus, what can they get away with? Um, and if they think they can get away with the shortcut, they'll do it. Um, I also had an experience, this is kind of in the category of an area where I think the students thought they would get away with it, with oral presentations. And students just read their oral presentation straight off of a website, thinking, well, you know, they with written work, you can submit it to a website called turnitin.com, which kind of checks for plagiarism. But And so a lot of them are very cautious when they know their, their work is being submitted to turn it in. But as soon as I got a different kind of situation where that didn't apply, I had maybe a quarter of the class do this on their oral presentations. Um, that's students. Um, I, I, I don't think faculty are that bad. Um, certainly if you read published work, like if you walk through a bookstore and there's all these books around you, I don't think the majority of those have plagiarism in them. However, there was an interesting um, report in uh, uh, something by uh, author named Roig in 2001. It uh, did an experiment with some college instructors and gave them a passage and said, paraphrase this passage. And up to 30% of the instructors, these aren't necessarily published authors, I suppose, but up to 30% of them copied string of words verbatim, which is not the right way to paraphrase or, or just substitute a synonym, not the right way to paraphrase. You're essentially saying these are my words and they're not. Um, and that's what, so that's that's what so, Gay did in the passages that you were just yeah. sharing. She basically copied whole passages and she substituted black uh, or African-American for black was the only change. Yeah. Um, I think it's also interesting when you ask students, and I think also when you ask a lot of professors why plagiarism is wrong, um, you do get an answer uh, sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes it's not wrong, but sometimes when you do get an answer and an answer that maybe will be a student's reason for saying, okay, I'm not going to plagiarize, all it is is they'll say, well, it's not fair to other students. Like, we have to all be equal for these grades to, you know, properly kind of classify us all. And if one of us gets the ability to plagiarize while the other doesn't, that's unfair. Um, but then if you have, if you really have the view that some people are saying about Claudine Gay, that, well, the kind of, the kind of thing she did is something everyone does. Well, okay. It's everyone has, everyone does it. It's not unfair. Um, and I, I don't think that reason for the wrong of plagiarism is ultimately very compelling, especially in a situation, again, where you're kind of rushed and doing something at the last minute. Yeah, and I think it's, it's probably not a big, huge surprise that college students don't have well-defined and formulated moral values. They're, they're college students. They're, they're still figuring out what, they, what kind of person they want to be and what they want to do with their lives and what's the meaning of life, this is not a shock. What's more shocking is that they're not getting any guidance, any meaningful guidance 
from their professors in trying to find that code of values, especially on an issue like plagiarism, where it's where the rubber hits the road of ethics. It's, it's the big ethical issue that you deal with on a daily basis in college. And you'd, you'd think that of all the ethical topics you could talk about in things like ethics classes, this would be one of them. But alas, when we look to the professors themselves, uh, we either get nothing on this issue or we get shockingly contrarian views on the subject. And I have two major examples I want to mention today. The first is an interview that recently came out in the New Yorker magazine with a guy named uh, D. Stephen Voss. And what's remarkable about this guy is he was Claudine Gay's former poli-sci professor uh, when, when he used to be at Harvard. And it's not just that, but she plagiarized from him. He, she, he's one of the guys from whom she plagiarized. And you'd think as the victim of plagiarism, that he would be upset, uh, angry, maybe even condemnatory. But that is not the case from this New Yorker interview. Uh, this was just about a week ago that this was published. And uh, Voss admits, now he, keep in mind, he's only here talking about the narrow question of the material that she took from his work. This is leaving aside the 39 or however many other cases that she seems to have committed across the course of her career. But when he says he look, when he looks at what she took from his work, he admits it was technically plagiarism. Uh, but he's saying technically because he says, quote, the plagiarism in question here did not take an idea of any significance from my work. It didn't steal my thunder. It didn't stop me from publishing. Um, so only technically because he's just copying the words, not, not doing anything that uh, adds accolades to her own work, takes them away from him. But he goes on and says, somebody could steal good ideas I had, write them up differently, and they'd have done serious damage to me. Whereas if Claudine had borrowed three times as many words, but it was all in an unimportant part of the paper, that would have done me no harm. So it's just technically plagiarism and not so bad because it was sort of boring plagiarism, because it didn't, uh, it didn't take credit for his achievement. It just took his words. One last passage I, I got to read to you from this really remarkable interview. He says, quote, it shouldn't be controversial to call what Claudine did plagiarism. We teach students that it's plagiarism all the time. But the problem with using language that's customary within academic institutions in a public setting is that outsiders will warp what we say. The one phrase I've intentionally avoided using is academic dishonesty. Within an academic setting, plagiarism is an example of academic dishonesty. But if I'd said she committed academic dishonesty, that would have been warped and manipulated quite deceptively. So I avoided the term. Okay. So he's saying, oh, we have this term of art, academic dishonesty. We use it when one person takes the words of another person, pretends that they're their own. But you wouldn't want to use that on the outside of, outside of an academic context, because then people might think that we're actually talking about something that's wrong. People might think that we're actually talking about a moral vice. We wouldn't want them to do that. That would be deceptive, uh, as though deceptiveness is a moral vice. So this is the remarkable claim that, yes, it was plagiarism, but basically he's saying we shouldn't pretend like it was wrong. 
And this is uh, a shocking, a shocking comment coming from uh, someone who's been a victim of it. To to say nothing of the fact that he's a professor somewhere, uh, and the reason that he gives for thinking that it's not wrong is also revealing, and it's something we'll see in the in the second example that I have, that. Uh, he doesn't think it's wrong because, well, no one else was hurt in this case. She's just using words that aren't hers, didn't steal my thunder. Uh, she's not pretending to have uh, taken my achievements as though I didn't do them. Well, that's, that's true, but does that mean that it's not wrong? Does that mean that it's not worthy of condemnation? Let's then turn to uh, a second example, also remarkable. Now, this is... This is uh, an essay that was published in 2019 before the scandal happened, but it was uh, recently retweeted by the author on January 4th after the scandal, as if to say this applies even more so now. And the author here is Agnes Callard, who's a philosophy professor at the University of Chicago. We spent some time commenting on her views of the humanities a few weeks ago. So um, sad to say we have more criticisms, but. Uh, in this piece that she wrote for The Point magazine back in 2019, she, she argues that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with not crediting a source. Okay, um, I think that's probably right. I don't think there's anything that's intrinsically right or wrong. I could sit here all day by my computer copying and pasting into a blank document. Um, and if I'm not trying to pass it off as my own, uh, in front of the eyes of other people who are there to evaluate my skills or in some way benefit from them, then um, yeah, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. But of course, when we talk about plagiarism, we're not just talking about somebody mindlessly copying and pasting into a document of their own. We're talking about doing it in a way that suggests you really wrote it to somebody to whom it matters for one reason or another. And she argues that academic ideas can't be copyrighted. Academics can't make money off of their writings. Well, it's true they can't it's not true that they can't make money. There are academic books that do well. And it's true that ideas can't be copyrighted, but the writing sure can. And that's, again, what we're talking about when we talk about plagiarism. We're talking about taking the writing. Uh, if somebody willingly writes a paper for you, even though you haven't stolen it from anybody because they've, you've hired them to write the paper for you, it's still plagiarism and it's still wrong. So it's, this isn't even a question about the property ownership of, uh, of the words. It's about, uh, it's about passing something off as yours that isn't yours to someone to whom it matters. And I'll just one more thing about what Callard says. She, she argues that the demand to cite your sources and the demand to say where you got some passage of writing or some idea is, is really just a kind of system of ring kissing for academics who can't get money or honor otherwise. And so they're demanding uh, this recognition because they have uh, low self-esteem or something like that. And that's probably true for some uh, academics, but it's hardly, again, the, the heart of the issue when we're talking about plagiarism. I mean, most plagiarism that students do is stuff that they get from random internet sources, Wikipedia, there's nobody there who wants the credit. It's again, the problem is pretending as though you wrote something that you didn't, representing yourself as someone you're not, as having a certain skill or ability that you don't. And um, there are skills and abilities that we go to college to learn. 
It's part of the value of a humanities education. A few weeks ago, when we talked about Agnes Callard's article for the New York Times about the value of the humanities, what was remarkable about it was that she said, I don't really know what's valuable about the humanities. At least she's honest to admit that. But Professor Callard, could, could the value of the humanities perhaps have something to do with developing these kinds of skills? And to be developing them, you need to be the one who's doing it as opposed to passing it off as somebody else's work. Uh, Dan, do you have any uh, thoughts on that before we, we go into the, the philosophical issue here? Yeah, I think these defenses of plagiarism, I mean, they get a little bit of plausibility from the fact that there are different degrees of severity of plagiarism and there are different motivations and different contexts. I think it's important to recognize that in this context of Claudine Gay, the context is of someone who should know better and who did this repeatedly and and who, whose readers would be deceived about which, you know, which words are actually hers. Um, there are certainly other contexts. There are certainly contexts where I've said of a student, okay, that's just technically plagiarism, so I will just lower your letter grade by like one letter. Um, but that's the sort of context where it's clearly an accident and they did it one time, say. Um, and so let's be clear. Like, I, I think the main thing we want to talk about here is cases where through some fault of the author, you are deceiving someone about what is your own work. Yeah, and so it's one thing to say that students do this just because they don't know what they're doing. But the, the widespread nature of the practice makes, it think, makes us think that it's not just that, that it's that they don't actually think it's wrong. And if indeed they're getting their instruction from professors who don't really, at their heart, Think it's wrong. Maybe some of them go through the uh, the motions of occasionally bringing someone up on charges because they know it's expected by the institution, and the institution doesn't even really care that much. But they have policies on the books somewhere that say this has to be done. Uh, maybe they'll do that. But if they don't, in their heart, really think that it's wrong, that explains a lot of what's going on here because they're not explaining it to their students. They're not trying to convince their students that it's wrong. Uh, they're not teaching their ethics classes in a way that is designed to show that among other things. And this is where I think we have to get to the, the really the deeper issue, or the, the deepest issue behind the, the problem with plagiarism in higher education and, and anywhere else in life where you see it happening. And that's that I think our academic culture, but in another way, our wider intellectual culture just doesn't think it's wrong. And there's a reason for that, that has to do the, with the way our intellectuals and with our, the way our academics think about morality. Um, academics from all kinds of fields, intellectuals from all kinds of different fields, get their uh, guidance for how to think morally and ethically from academic ethicists. I mean, you think that if that's what they're there for, it's to provide ethical leadership. If it's not what they're there for, what are they there for? And when you turn to the subject of what do academic ethicists have to say about the subject of plagiarism, the shocking thing is the answer is basically nothing. I surveyed two major sources to come to this conclusion. Uh, one is the Philosopher's Index, which is the academic index, the electronic academic index of publications on 
uh, philosophic topics, including ethical topics. I looked back about uh, 30 years through the Philosopher's Index, and I could find maybe four or five articles that dealt with the ethics of plagiarism, but not even in a really serious way. It was more like surveying students' attitudes about the ethics of plagiarism, uh, on occasion trying to argue why it was wrong or how to explain why it's wrong, but very little, very little. Um, uh, most of the hits in the index that mentioned plagiarism were simply social scientific studies about the extent and pervasiveness of, uh, of plagiarism. Uh, in my experience, uh, it's rarely even taught as a subject in ethics classes where, you know, I can't tell you how many ethics classes I've taught where students plagiarize their ethics paper. I, I, even, had, uh, I even had an ethics class where I had a paper on honesty and the student plagiarized the paper on honesty. Well, if, if the academic ethicists aren't even writing about the subject, it's not going to be taught in the textbooks. It's not going to come up in even ethics classes. And I also, the other major subject, the other major source I looked at was the academic journal Ethics, which is the most prestigious journal in the field of ethics. It's just called Ethics. It's published by the University of Chicago. Um, I, I, I looked through that, and at least if I did a keyword search, I got no articles in their archives about plagiarism. That might and maybe some articles discussed it in passing, but it didn't look like the major subject of any of the articles in ethics was plagiarism, even though this is an ethical subject that comes up in ethics classes. Um, so that's a point about the way ethicists think about plagiarism, which is to say they just, they don't. But there's an even broader point to be made here about the wider subject of which I think plagiarism is an instance. And that's the question of honesty versus dishonesty, the morality of honesty versus dishonesty. Is honesty a virtue? I think most people think that it is. I think that most ethicists will probably even admit begrudgingly um, that honesty is a virtue. But here again, if you look to the amount of work that ethicists have done on the subject, it is strikingly uh, impoverished. There's, there's very little. Um, now, there's a, a book that came out just a couple years ago uh, in 2021, one year, two years ago, yes, by Christian Miller, and it's called Honesty, uh, the Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. So, okay, here's a philosopher who's not neglecting it, but he opens the book by establishing that it has, in fact, been neglected. He says, quote, philosophers have stunningly, in my view, almost completely omitted the virtue of honesty from their professional writing. And he says in his survey of the academic literature on the virtue of honesty, he, he finds only one book prior to his that was published since the 1970s uh, on the topic of honesty. And he also notes that that book, which was by uh, Cecily Bach, Lying, Moral Choice in Public and Private Life, 1978, also uh, lamented the lack of work on the issue. She said, major works of moral philosophy in this century, so... Uh, so illuminating in other respects are silent on this subject. Uh, the author of the new book, Miller, also found no mainstream journal articles on the subject of honesty in the last 50 years. And that's, that's in spite of uh, the major focus that the field has taken in the last 50 years 
on a new approach to ethics called virtue ethics. And you'd think, well, if ever there were a virtue, honesty would be a virtue. And yet all these virtue ethicists, almost nobody's writing about honesty. I have to say the one notable exception um, that Christian Miller notes in his footnote when he says no major works of moral philosophy uh, in the last, the mainstream journals, the major exception that he notes is uh, a member of the board of directors of the Ayn Rand Institute, Tara Smith, uh, who wrote, uh, he cites her article from uh, 2014, The Metaphysical Case for Honesty, and he also cites uh, her book, Ayn Rand's Normative Ethics, which has a chapter on honesty. So that is the one exception to the, to the uh, claim that he can't find anybody writing on the virtue of honesty in the last 50 years in mainstream, uh, high uh, prestige academic philosophy journals. Why all the neglect? Miller says, I do not have a good answer to this question, quote, unquote. And uh, what I want to do now is, is try to offer an answer, because I think I have a proposed hypothesis that explains why even all of these virtue ethicists don't care about honesty. And we see this by thinking about plagiarism um, as a concrete case, especially if you think about plagiarism in school, where... Uh, you can often very easily get away with it where it's not obvious in any clear, measurable way why you're hurting anybody by doing it. And yet it still seems wrong, right? And that's because what makes it wrong is much more focused on questions about your own health and education as a student. It's, it's more focused on questions about self-development. The person you're cheating the most when you do that kind of plagiarism is you. But as we saw from those comments from Voss and from Callard, they think, academic ethicists think, academic ethicists like Callard think, that it's not really a moral issue at all if it doesn't involve other people. It's not a moral issue at all if it doesn't hurt anybody, if the only person you're hurting is yourself. And that's because they think ethics isn't really about the self. It's about others. It's about your relationship to other people. And you get confirmation of this when you look at the way, at the kind of topics that academic ethicists are writing about and are teaching about uh, in their ethics classes. There was, a, there was an article that came out uh, some years ago uh, by a guy named Sigrist, and it was talking about why ethicists aren't ethical. And I wrote an article about this myself a few years ago. We'll mention this at the end of the podcast. But uh, he talks about the kind of issues that they do focus on. Here's his list. Abortion, torture, charity, meat eating, prostitution, organ markets, climate change, poverty, gun control, procreation, reproductive rights, and so forth. So they have lots to say about these sort of controversial cases where people come into conflict with each other. Uh, one person seems to need to sacrifice to the other in order for the conflict to be resolved. That's what ethics is about. Ethics is about resolving conflicts among people where one has to sacrifice to the other. Uh, but they don't have that much to say about the ordinary big questions of life where we still need guidance about what we ought to do. And I can't help but mention uh, anecdote here, if th some of you have seen the, uh, the, the NBC sitcom from a few years ago, uh, The Good Place, which is like the uncharacteristic thing as, of, a, 
of a sitcom about moral philosophy. And one of the central characters in the show is a guy named Chidi. He's a, moral, he's a professor of moral philosophy. And he knows all the theories. He knows all the conflicts. And what's interesting about the character is, in spite of that, he can never make any decisions about his life. And it's all brought to uh, a climax in a scene where he's put on a trolley to illustrate the actual trolley problem. You know, the one about you're rolling the trolleys out of control. It can change tracks, go one place or another. It'll kill one person on one, three on the other. Which should he do? And then there's all kinds of variations of that. And Chidi, the big moral, uh, moral philosophy professor who's thought about this his whole career, his whole life, uh, isn't able to decide even what to do with the trolley. But, you know, let alone the ordinary kinds of questions and decisions that people face in normal life, but they don't have to deal with unresolvable conflicts. Um, the view among academic ethicists is that ethics isn't about giving normal life guidance. It's not about telling you how to be a good person. It's not about how to uh, live a fulfilling, healthy life. It's not about the kind of self-development issues that are involved in education, in work, in becoming a professional, in becoming a learned scholar. It doesn't have advice for that. It only has advice about how to settle these conflicts where one person needs to be sacrificed for another, who should do the sacrificing. That's what they think the subject of ethics is. And if that's their view, it's little wonder that they don't see plagiarism as, as a moral issue in many, many cases. And it's then little wonder that so many students don't get the message that it's, that it's wrong, that so many professors don't get the message that it's wrong. Apparently, even that university professors uh, university presidents don't get the message that it's wrong. There, there has been one place in a lot of ethics classes where I think honesty comes up, or at least what people are thinking about is honesty, and that is in Immanuel Kant, uh, who has this famous argument that if a murderer is knocking at your door and asking, you know, is, is your mother home? Like, show me and I'm going to go kill her, that you must still tell the truth to the murderer. Um, and I think because, you know, so that's, first of all, that's the way people are conceptualizing what honesty is, just telling the truth no matter what. And then it's rejected because that's crazy. And, and it's rejected. That's, there's nobody good. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do, it's, it's, it's bad for other people. So it's bad. And so, uh, you know, if honesty could be something that benefits other, if, sorry, if dishonesty could be something that benefits other people, as in this case, go for it. There's nothing that makes honesty a virtue. Um, yeah. Um, there is um, a passage from Ayn Rand which really gets at the mindset here of how morality is, becomes something that people think of as their enemy and, and how we need a, a proper conception of morality to understand that something like honesty could be a virtue because it is necessary for our flourishing. Uh, so I think we have that passage to share. Here we go. Um, so in virtue of selfishness, the introduction, Rand writes, altruism declares that any action taken for the benefit of others is good and any action taken for one's own benefit is evil. Thus, the beneficiary of an action is the only criterion of moral value. And she goes on, observe what this beneficiary criterion of morality does to a man's life. The first thing he learns is that morality is his enemy he has nothing to gain from it. He can only lose. Self-inflicted loss, self-inflicted pain, and the grave debilitating pain of an incomprehensible duty is all that he can expect. A 
apart from such times as he manages to perform some act of self-sacrifice, he possesses no moral significance. Morality takes no cognizance of him and has nothing to say to him for guidance in the crucial issues of his life. It is only his own personal, private, selfish life, and as such is regarded as either evil or at best amoral. And I think you, you can get some people, students, perhaps professors, who have this beneficiary criterion of morality and then see the rule that you should not plagiarize as some uh, just arbitrary, arbitrary constraint that like, prevents them from doing what would really benefit them or as something, yeah, they should do it, but it's a sacrifice and they maybe lose out on opportunities that other people have. I think it's really important to emphasize that last part of her passage where she says, this view of morality has nothing to say to him for guidance in the crucial issues of his life. It's only his own personal, private, selfish life. And as such, it is regarded as either as evil or at best as amoral. And I think it's the amorality that is the most, the, the view that it's amoral, that's the most common view. And that's what's happening with people's view of plagiarism. That's why Voss says, well, it's technically plagiarism, but let's not call it dishonesty. That would make people think it was wrong. That would make them uh, mislead people, which is a bizarrely incoherent statement. But th this, is, this is one of those crucial issues in life. Are you going to be the author of your own work? Are you going to be the one to create your own career or are you going to, are you going to parasitize others? And they will think at most, yeah, okay, maybe you're cheating yourself when you plagiarize, but that's not a moral issue. You're being impractical. It's not very wise. Uh, it's you know, something that a good self-help book might recommend against, but this isn't a moral issue and who are we to judge? And so Dan, we should talk now about, okay, what, why, why is this a moral issue? I and mean, we've hinted at it already. Uh, why, what are the bad effects of plagiarism on yourself if we assume, as I think we should, that finding a code of values to guide the fundamental course of our life is one of the things that morality is for. And what I want to argue is that, and I, I've, I've argued it to students over the years, uh, is that, uh, yes, plagiarism is a form of cheating, but the person you are cheating most is yourself. Now, that's, I think, sometimes sounds like a cliche, but if, but it's true and it's importantly true. And it's especially true in an educational context where you are not there because the teacher needs your writing to publish in a highbrow journal somewhere and they're relying on your, the quality of your scholarship. You're there to learn. You're there to learn how to think about ideas for yourself. You're there to develop as a writer. You're there to develop as a thinker. And if you're just copying someone else's work, that is not what you're doing. You're not learning. You're not getting educated. And it's, it's shocking to me that Agnes Callard, who's very learned herself, doesn't think that this could be a value at stake in the plagiarism debate. And here's, here's a way that I would concretize this uh, in an updated way. There's all this controversy right now about the use of chat GPT, about the role of AI. Part of that controversy is, well, what do we do with students who are uh, using chat GPT to write their papers for them and to cheat? And it's a good question. And I think it demands creative answers. I suspect that it demands more creative assignments 
uh, from professors. But for the students who are tempted to do this, I would say the following thing. If you get to the point where you can't write a paper on your own and can't put your own ideas into your own words, where you have to rely on AI to do it for you, wow, you're going to be pretty easy to replace with AI in the future when it gets even better, aren't you? And if you are easily replaceable by AI, I don't think you've gotten much value out of your education, which leads one to wonder, why are you spending so damn much money on it? And that, of course, is where the cheating other people comes into the mix, because somebody's paying for that education of yours. Your parents are paying for it. Taxpayers are probably paying for it. And they are paying for you to not get educated when you cheat. And that is cheating other people. Incidentally, I would say it's also cheating the time of your teachers who are there to teach you. I think most of them want to educate you. And they're doing it on the assumption that you're producing your own work, which they're there to evaluate. And their evaluation of it is part of the educational process. You're wasting their time when you do that. I think in a work context, it's even more obvious that uh, it is about cheating other people because people hire you to do a job. They think you have the skills. It's especially true in an academic work context where your job is to discover new knowledge. And if you're just passing it off somebody else's knowledge as yours, you're really not doing your job. But I think the last point we should talk about, Dan, is how even the cases where what you're doing is cheating other people, the reason not to do that is itself dependent on facts about your own happiness, your own self-interest, your own self-development. And, and here's where I think we should talk about Ayn Rand's view of why honesty is a virtue more generally. Yeah, so in Rand's view, honesty is a virtue not because it's some duty we have to follow. This is the way Kant was thinking of it as, yeah, it's a burden, but you've got to do it. No, honesty is something that we need. It is a selfish value. But importantly, it's not, the way to think of honesty is not just as telling the truth. Uh, objectivism's unique conception of honesty is that it's facing the facts and it's a refusal to invent a fantasy that you're going to live in or a refusal to fake reality. Um, that is, first and foremost, you don't delude yourself about what you've done, about what your accomplishments are, about what you can do. Um, and you don't depend on inventing delusions in other people's minds because those are delusions if you invent them. And we live in reality. And to succeed, we need, you know, we need the facts of reality to be on our side. And inventing a fantasy, whether in your own mind or other people's minds, a professor say, um, isn't going to work. And wishing that you can write words that you can't actually write is not going to make you actually capable of writing them or prepare you for the future. Wishing doesn't make it so. And now a lot of people, you know, will agree on some level that honesty is a virtue, but they don't really grasp that we need it consistently as a moral principle. And then they'll get into a situation where there's a lot of pressure, time pressure, and they will think, well, they'll, they'll think pragmatically in terms of costs and benefits and ask, can I get away with it? I mean, first of all, good chance you won't get away with it or a good chance you'll be called into an office and either have to fess up or cover it up with more lies. And then those lies can inspire a lot of control. But, but we did say earlier, a lot of students aren't caught. 
um, and you might not be. But even then, when you think about how inventing this fantasy puts you at odds with reality. First, there's one person that knows what you did, which is you. You know that you can't actually write. And what does that do? It destroys your self-esteem. It destroys your confidence. Um, it makes you even more dependent on that sort of technique in the future. Um, and, and as Ben, you said, I, someone who um, you know, rises to the next class in a sequence and has an assignment where they're expected to learn certain skills in the previous class, I mean, they're going to have to cheat again or, or, or be totally useless. Um, and I think the whole point of an education is to gain the skills you need in life. If, if you're not doing that, why are you even there? Um, so, so I think we need to really grasp that honesty is something that is good for us, that we need as a selfish value, and we need to hold it consistently as a moral principle. Anything and to add on that? One thing, yeah, one thing to bring out, especially about how the virtue of honesty applies in the case of plagiarism. There's something about plagiarism that really brings out what's wrong with honesty. Um, because one of the fundamental principles in Ayn Rand's view of it is that honesty is about not faking reality. Uh, that, that when you try to fake reality in any way, uh, you're making reality your enemy because the facts that you are wishing away in one form or another are not going to go away because of that. And so just for example, with plagiarism, um, you may want to pretend that you wrote this and you didn't. And you can't change the fact that you didn't write that. And one example of the way you can't change the fact that you write that is that the original source is still out there waiting to be found. And it used to be, it was easier to get away with cheating because it was harder to find the original source. Nothing was digitized. Now everything is digitized, including things that were written decades and centuries ago. And now people have an incentive to go out and find those original sources and take people's back catalog of writings and plug them into an AI and find who cheated and who didn't. And this guy, Bill Ackman, uh, who was one of the ones who was instrumental in, in, uh, in, in pushing for uh, Claudine Gay to arise, he was involved in that. And now he's, he's saying he's going to put the whole, the whole back works of the whole faculty of MIT through AI and see who, who plagiarized and who didn't. And, you know, as much as those professors might not want him to do that, and as much as in certain cases, they may want to have pretended that their work was their own, it wasn't. And the reality behind that is still out there. The, the original works are still out there for someone to find. And just, that's just one example of how you're making reality your enemy by, by approaching things dishonestly. And that's to say nothing of the fact that you aren't developing the skills. You may want to pretend you have a skill, uh, but the reality that you don't is going to confront you. And yeah, you can keep going back to your tried and true method of cheating, but eventually uh, you're not gonna be able to rely on it, uh, especially if it's an artificially intelligent computer that easily replaces you. In a way, I think it's, it's good for people to get caught when they plagiarize. If they're not caught, <laughs> and then they're regarded as capable of doing things they're not capable of doing, and they rise and they succeed more and more, that success becomes you know, their enemy. 
because it makes it even more likely that they're going to be exposed. Um, it, it's, I, I think I've had students who actually appreciated getting caught and realized that this is what was ultimately good for them so that they start actually doing the work. And fortunately, I think Claudine Gay didn't get caught in time uh, and her lack of experience uh, was on display in those congressional hearings. I don't think that's the only thing that was on display, but uh, it was one of the problems. And even now, when she has been caught, if you look at the New York Times column that she wrote last week about it, it doesn't seem like she's learned anything from it. And I suspect that's because she's got the backing of the moral views of the academic intellectual establishment, because they just don't think that dishonesty is all that wrong. And uh, for reasons we've discussed today, and I hope, I hope people find this uh, somewhat enlightening in explaining the state of this controversy. So we do have some resources that you might want to look at uh, related to our topic today, honesty um, and plagiarism. Uh, first up, we have uh, an entry from the Ayn Rand lexicon on honesty. Um, and you can go to bit.ly slash AR hyphen honesty for that. Uh, we mentioned Ayn Rand's Normative Ethics by Tara Smith, which has an excellent discussion of the virtue of honesty. Um, and there is the link there. Um, we have why today's ethics offer no real guidance. That's an article by you, Ben, in our, uh, in our blog, New Ideal. Um, that's bit.ly slash, uh, I'm not sure I can read that, R-O hyphen real hyphen guidance. And also uh, we have uh, earlier in the episode we mentioned uh, about a month ago, we did a podcast episode on the real scandal underlying campus anti-Semitism. Uh, that's with Ankar Gatte and Elon Giorno. And uh, that is bit.ly slash real campus scandal. I think that earlier bit.ly uh, was uh, bit.ly slash no hyphen real hyphen guidance. Ah, that would make more sense. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So um, we do want to mention that starting probably later this month, we are going to be doing bi-weekly uh, episodes answering your questions. Um, so we would like you to submit your questions to experts at einran.org. Um, as many questions as you have, we will definitely take a look at, um, and you may see them answered on this stream. I should say we, um, we especially you... appreciate philosophical questions about really central topics and ethics and politics right now. We could use some of those if people have got them. Absolutely. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Click the bell there to get notifications for when we go live. Um, if you're watching on the recording, please like, comment, share. Um, that definitely helps us get more viewers um, and bring the podcast to other people's attention. Um, do the same if you're on Facebook or whatever platform you're on. Um, if you have questions or comments on this episode, um, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at that address, newideal at einran.org. We do read all of your emails and we reply to many of them. Um, so that will be it for today. Um, thanks, Ben. Thanks, uh, Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, 
leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.